All right. So growing up, my sister loved to go to two restaurants in particular. If it was her birthday or she got to pick what restaurant we'd go to, she picked one of two restaurants. It was either Sweet Tomatoes or Sizzler, okay? Or is it The Sizzler? I don't know. Sizzler, okay? So you guys know there's one in town left standing, okay? There's, I think it's still standing, but there's one left in town, The Sizzler. And both of these restaurants were buffets. And the reason my sister loved going to buffets is because at these places, there was a little bit of something for everybody. I think it brought her a bit of joy that everybody could get something that they liked and they got to chose it. She's also picky, okay? I hope she doesn't listen to this, but she's also really picky. So there was also something there for her. And so she would always pick sweet tomatoes or sizzler to, to go out to eat. And today, as we're in this chapter six of Nehemiah, what I realized as I was planning out this sermon, in this sermon, there's a little bit of something for everybody. There's a little bit of something for everybody, but just like buffets, sermons can have this thing where you connect with what resonates with you most, and that's what you get out of it, right? Like at a buffet, you pick what you like most, and that's what you get out of it, and a lot of times with sermons, you resonate with certain things, and you don't resonate with other things, and the problem with that is, it's the same problem we have at buffets, is often... When we go to a buffet, we get what we want, but not what we need. And I'm saying nutritionally. We get what we want, but not what we need, right? Like we just have a giant nacho plate, no vegetables, right? We got whatever it is, like whatever the thing is that you really like there, and none of the stuff your body actually needs to not die quickly. And sometimes how we listen to sermons is kind of like that too. How we listen to sermons is we get what we want out of it. We go, man, that was a really good point, but we don't get what we need out of it. And so what I mean is sometimes how it works is it's almost like we each allow the cer- every, a, a certain parts of the sermon to preach to us like it's preaching to the choir. Like, yeah, I agree. And, and the problem with that is we often just kind of take those things that we really like out of the sermon and, and we kind of use it just to kind of feel self-righteous or judge others and go, yeah, get those other people, Anthony. But my hope for today is that even though there's going to be a little bit of something for everybody in this sermon, my hope is that we get what we need, not just what we want out of this sermon. My hope is that even in those moments where you're like, man, this doesn't sound like it's for me, or this doesn't sound like it's something that resonates with me, I, would, I, I hope that we could begin to ask the question, okay, what do I need from this? What is God trying to speak to me from this? Okay, and so that's my hope for today, that, that we get not only what we want out of the sermon, but, but that we get what we need out of the sermon. And so if you're new here or, or newer here, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. We love to go through bo- books of the Bible, and so we took a little break from John. We'll be back in John in, in a couple months here, but right now we're in the book of Nehemiah. And what we've seen is Nehemiah is this leader in the midst of God's people, who's looking to restore God's people in a variety of ways. And, and he's kind of answering the question with the book of Nehemiah, what does it mean for us to be God's people? And particularly in these times of danger and discouragement that the people of God were facing. They were spread out. They didn't have walls. There was all kinds of things that made it seem like maybe the God of Israel wasn't really real, wasn't really powerful. And so Nehemiah begins to answer this question in this book of Nehemiah. What does it mean to be God's people in times of danger, in times of discouragement? So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through Nehemiah chapter 6 together. We're going to go all through Nehemiah chapter 6 together. It's, pre- it's only 19 verses. It will be pretty quick. I'll explain as we go along, so I'll stop at different moments as we go along. 
And then as I was studying Nehemiah 6, there, there was all sorts of things that jumped out to me, but there, there's three things in particular, three kind of observations that I want to make about Nehemiah chapter 6. And here's the purpose of the observations. It's not just like, ooh, these are fun, exciting. The purpose of the observations is the same purpose that Nehemiah has in writing the whole book of Nehemiah. The purpose is that we would be built up as the people of God that we would live out our true identity as the people of God, that we would, allow these, we would allow God's character and nature to build us up into the sort of people that he wants us to be. And so I have three different observations, and my hope is that each one of those observations would build us up into truly living out our call, our vocation as God's people, as his display people across the earth. Okay, so that's my hope. So let's just hop into it. We'll go through chapter 6 first and then hop into those observations. So uh, you could turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6 if you have your Bibles. If not, we have it on the screen. And guess what? It's the same word, so it's just as powerful. So chapter 6 of Nehemiah verse 1 says this. We'll go through the first nine verses together. Uh, Now, when Sambalah and Tobiah... And Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies had heard that I had built the wall, and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sambalah and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaparum in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work, why, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it's reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Okay, let's pause there for a bit. So, Nehemiah's enemies, we've seen these guys, Tobiah and Sambalah and Geshem. I don't know what their deal is, but they have not liked Nehemiah from the start. They want to stop his work. They're against his work. They don't like Nehemiah. They don't want God's people. They don't want Israel to have any sort of walls in Jerusalem. They're not about it. And so in chapter 6, we begin to see some of their schemes, really more of their schemes. And it's getting a little bit more serious. They invite Nehemiah out to a field. Listen, I'm going to give you some free advice. It's right here in the Bible. If people that don't like you invite you to a solitary place in the middle of nowhere, don't go, okay? Don't, they want to jump you. I know we don't get jumped in Flagstaff, but they want to jump you, okay? They want to kill you. They want to do harm to you. So don't meet with people. Don't meet with people that don't like you in uh, solitary places. It's just good advice. And so Nehemiah realizes that. He's got common sense. He goes, listen, no, I got work to do. I'm not going to come down. And then they go, let's, let's change it up. It really feels like junior high a little bit, right? <laughs> like it feels so junior high. And they're like, listen, <sighs> like they, 
the word on the street is you're trying to become king and like you're hiring all these prophets to proclaim that you're the king and listen, just come meet with us. We'll sort it all out, right? Even Geshem who's with us, we'll sort it out. We'll figure it out. We'll, you know, and Nehemiah knows, listen, you're, you're trying to kill me. Like you're trying to get me to this place where, where you want to kill me. And I love uh, that Nehemiah goes, listen, they, they're just trying to intimidate us. They're trying to make us afraid. They're, all of us who were finishing up our work on the wall, they were trying to stop us from doing that work. They wanted us to be so afraid that we just stopped doing the work so the intimidations, the planned killings, the assassination plans, all that stuff would stop. And then I love Nehemiah as he's telling us this story. He stops and then he prays, right? He just writes this out, this prayer he had where he said, God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands in the midst of all this fear-mongering. Okay, verse 10. Uh, let's keep going and see some more of their schemes. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehab, Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors to the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I, I will not go in. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sambalah, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Okay, so the schemes get a little bit more tricky, a little bit more uh, schemey. I don't know what the word is there. Uh, but they, instead of just saying, hey, let's meet alone somewhere, they go, hey, let's hire this prophet. We'll hire this prophet to tell uh, Nehemiah to go into the temple to hide. And so I don't know if their plan was to kill Nehemiah in the temple or just besperch his name. Because what we find out is as Shemaiah is trying to convince Nehemiah to go in the temple, Nehemiah goes, one, I, I, I've got work to do. I can't leave my work. Why should I leave my responsibilities? I can't. And then two, Nehemiah acknowledges acknowledges the sacredness of the temple, right? They had just kind of like rebuilt and reestablished the temple and they saw the temple as sacred and it was sacred in that time and place because it represented the manifest presence of God. And so they had different cleansing rituals at that time of, of what you had to do before you went into the temple. And he knew because of the sort of man he was and not being a priest and all this stuff that if he went in, he'd be kind of just like spitting in the face of all of that. And he knew that Israel would begin to look at him uh, in a, a lower way uh, and they would not just see him in as positive a light. And so he says, I'm not going to go in for those two reasons. And, and then Nehemiah basically, he finds out, like this is Sambalot and Tobiah again. They hired one of my brethren to try to trick me into going into a place that would besperch his name or maybe they would kill him in there. We don't know. And then what we find out is not only did they hire Sambalot, but they hired a prophetess, Noadiah, and all these different, there was this group of Israelites that were kind of coming against Nehemiah and the work and trying, scheming, trying to trap him, trying to like make him look bad. And again, Nehemiah stops and he prays and he prays, God, remember them. 
One of the beautiful promises of the Bible is God doesn't want us to ignore evil. He just doesn't want us to be the ones to take care of it ultimately. Right? We should act up when there is evil, but vengeance is God's ultimately is what God tells us. And so this prayer that Nehemiah has in this moment, he's saying, God, remember them. Remember all these people doing all this evil. It is a, it's a sort of a, a lament type of a prayer. Okay, let's keep going. Let's see the next scheme that, that happens even in spite of the work getting done. Verse 15 of chapter 6. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, the son of Jehohanan, and his son, Johan, I'm not going to do it again, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So, they finish. They finish the project. And in the midst of the finishing the project, they still are scheming. They're still doing these things. So they finished this great project that was the reason why Nehemiah even came back to Jerusalem. They finished the walls. They re-fortified Jerusalem in these different ways. And Tobiah, again, he's sending these letters. And what, what's happening is he's sending these letters to different people and he's just getting intel on Nehemiah. Or he's sending these different letters like we've seen earlier in the text that are just flat out lies about Nehemiah. And so he's just scheming around, sending all these letters, getting these letters, knowing everything Nehemiah is doing, and trying to have a foothold over Nehemiah constantly. And yet still, the work that God had for Nehemiah gets done. So, I want to move into these observations I have. I want to move into this kind of almost this buffet section of, of the sermon where there's, there's going to be a lot in here for everybody, but I want us to get what we need out of it. I want this, these observations to build us up as God's people. I also want this. Sometimes I, I said this recently to, to Doug. Uh, we were talking about one of the Nehemiah sermons, and I said, I, I fear the sermon might be six months too late. Because uh, Doug came up and he was saying some encouraging stuff. And I, I was like, sometimes I fear like I preach six months too late. And here, here's what I mean. It's like sometimes what I'm preaching about, it's what we were going through as a church or as a people six months ago. And so I, I get this feeling like sometimes where I'm like, ah, I wish I could have preached that six months ago. I wish I was wise enough to preach that six months ago. But as I was reflecting on that this week, here's what I realized is these observations that build us up into God's people in times of danger and times of discouragement, what I realized is that, that these observations have the potential to prepare us for the next similar storm as God's people. So maybe I am six months too late, but hopefully I'm six months too early as well. Hopefully that these things can begin to prepare us as God's people. And then, here's the other thing. I think some of these observations can help restore us from the season that we just went in as a church. And I mean a church in America. 
that I hope that these observations begin to build us up as God's people, that we would wear that identity truly, that it would not just be a trite thing, that it would not just be uh, something we do. We just try our best to get to church on Sundays. I wish we would see the power of Christ in our lives, that he is forming a people that have a unique identity in this world. And that's my hope. So I hope as we look at these observations, we listen to them, not just saying, Anthony talks good, but that we listen to them saying, God, how are you trying to form us? Okay, so my first, my first observation from Nehemiah chapter 6 is this. The pressure on God's people to fear man rather than God is intense. The pressure on God's people to fear man rather than God is intense. You just see this throughout the chapter. Three different times, Nehemiah uh, points out that they were trying to make him afraid. That they were trying to make God's people afraid. The pressure on Nehemiah was intense. It got to the point where they're trying to assassinate him. Where they're trying to uh, attack and slander him. Where they're just trying to make his life horrible. The pressure on Nehemiah to fear them more than God, was intense. Now, I don't think any of us are really going through what Nehemiah went through, but I do think living in this time and this place, the pressure on us to fear, God, fear man more than God is intense. When I say fear man, I mean to care more about what people think than what God thinks. To, to care more about humans' opinions of us than God's opinion of us. I think that pressure right now in this society is intense. And I, I want to be careful because I, often you can go to church and it sounds like the preacher is saying, all of them out there are bad and we're good. That's not the case. The reason the pressure is intense is because every single human heart wants to rebel against God. Every single human heart. Unfortunately, even us saved Christians we want, it's like a natural desire of ours at times to rebel against God. And so we live in a society full of people with human hearts. And those human hearts put pressure on us sometimes to rebel against God. Put pressure on us to fear how they see the world. Fear them more than fear God, more than care about what God would say to us, right? Like we hear all, like constantly we're just saying, we hear things like our view of God is wrong, our, our faith is unloving, it's intolerant, it's even a detriment to this world. And sometimes as we hear those kinds of things over and over again, what happens is their words start to get convincing, like, we start to feel the pressure, right? We start to feel the pressure to go, maybe, maybe the God of the Bible is unloving. Maybe he is intolerant. We start to feel that. We start to, feel, we start to go, maybe, we, we start to honestly be like Eve in the garden, where the serpent came to her and basically was like, did God really say that? We start to consider what they're saying. We start to get drawn into this fear. This fear of their opinion, this caring about their opinion, caring about what they think, more than caring about God and what he thinks. I think this shows up in, in all kinds of ways. Ed Welch, he wrote this book, When People 
are big and God is small. He says there's all sorts of symptoms to the fear of man. And some of them are going to be on the screen. All the ones I read are going to be on the screen. It, it says this. Uh, here are some of the symptoms of, of fear of man. Susceptibility to peer pressure. Being overcommitted because we can't say no. Fear of being exposed. Small lies to make ourselves look good. People making us jealous. Avoiding people. Comparing ourselves with others. And fear of evangelism. Now, all those things aren't only caused by a fear of man, but I bet for a lot of us that could admit to ourselves that we have a lot of those symptoms, I bet we would see, oh man, it's because I have a fear of man. I care more about what people think of me than anything else. I care more about what society thinks about me than, than anything else. There's this pressure on some of us to fear man, but here is the good news. Because of Christ, we don't have to fear a man. Because of Christ, we can be secure in our identity. Because of Christ, we can, be, we can be secure in who we are called to be as God's people. Because of Christ, we can trust him over their words. Because of Christ, we can, we can remember that we have a glorious Father in heaven who loves us more than any people on this planet. Because of Christ. I have this theory. Uh, it's just a theory because I'm only 33. But uh, I, I'm working it out. I'm trying my best to live it out. But here's my theory. My theory is if, if I love my kids to the best of my ability and to the point where they feel secure in their dad's love for them, that one day when they go out into the world, they'll be able to handle anything. That doesn't mean there won't be things that are extremely discouraging or hard or cause suffering in their life, but I just think that they'll be able to face those things better if they're secure in the fact that they have a dad who loves them. It's, just, it's a theory. I'm working it out. I'll tell you in about 18 years if it's right. But that's what, that, I think there's a sense in us that we go, no, that's kind of true. The, more, the people that are more secure in their parents' love usually can face the world in all sorts of ways. For us, as God's people, when we fear man, when we're in scary situations, how much more do we need to remember that we have a heavenly father that loves us more than I love my kids? Maybe you get anxiety saying no to people. Maybe that's one of the symptoms. You're like, man, I just really, I can't say no because it, I don't, I don't know how they'll view me if I say no. I just, I can't say no. Guess what? When you say no, you have your heavenly father beaming because he sees how you're letting your yes be yes, your no be no, and he sees how you're living with intention and you're choosing life over being a slave to every person's whims and desires for you. Maybe you, you're easily peer pressured. I think this sounds like something that's just for the younger people in the room, but I know plenty of older people that are peer pressured really quick too. Peer pressured into thinking certain things or saying certain views or contradicting themselves after many years because their peers believe something a certain way. Maybe you're easily peer pressured. Guess what? You have a father in heaven that loves you even when you don't do the thing that he wants you to do. 
Your peers might stop loving you if you do, don't do the thing that they want you to do. But God, your Father in heaven, is not. He's going to love you even when you don't do the thing he wants you to do. Maybe you have this deep fear of being seen as like unloving or intolerant or mean. God, our Father, knows our hearts so well. He knows exactly how you're chasing love. He knows exactly how he, through his spirit, is forming you to be more loving. There is an intense pressure on each and every one of us to fear people rather than to fear God. And the only way through it is if we become secure in the love of our Heavenly Father. Church, may we let the love of our Father build us and guide us as a church and build us up into being the people he wants us to be. Because otherwise it's just going to become this kind of rat race of trying to please different people. And we can't bear that burden. And it turns into all sorts of anxieties and stressors. But you have a heavenly Father that loves you even when you don't do what he wants you to do. Okay, my second observation. It's something I noticed in the text, but I, I, I actually kind of want to more ask it like a question rather than just say what my observation is. And so here's my question for us as God's people. Do you want to be God's prophet or the world's prophet? Okay, do you want to be God's prophet or the world's prophet? You, you saw that, right? Shemaiah, who was supposed to be one of the prophets of God, an Israelite, one of the people of God, he got paid off, and instead of being a mouthpiece for God, he became a mouthpiece for Tobiah and Sambalot. He began to speak the words that they wanted him to say, not the words that God wanted him to say. I want to say this. I love you. The world is using you sometimes. The world is using us sometimes. And I, I want to clarify, when I say the world, what does that mean? The world in Scripture is this robust word, and it really kind of means this idea, this overarching power. This overarching power that's really us doing things the way we think they should be done. Us living life the way we think it should be lived, instead of living life the way God knows it should be lived. Created it to be lived. And so when I say the world, I mean anybody that kind of encounters that sort of a spirit and proclaims it and pushes it forward. So yeah, I mean everybody out there, but I mean everybody in here who does the same thing. Yeah, I mean this nation, yeah, I mean every nation. The world is using you to be its mouthpiece. And sadly, we're letting it. And we're not even getting paid like Shemaiah and Noah Dye were. Right? At least they were getting paid. A lot of us become mouthpieces for the world for free. Here's how I know we're mouthpieces for the world. Every time there's a controversial thing or a talking point in society, we all are professionals at talking about those things. Like we're all like really good at talking about those things, usually from one side or the other. But all of us know the nuances of every single situation, I, even with, with different events, knowing the nuances in other countries with different situations. I'm just like, bro, you've never even read a history book. 
but we begin to be mouthpieces for these ideas and thoughts of all these things that we actually don't really know a lot about. And what I realize is happening is basically all of us are listening to our favorite podcasters and we're just spitting out what our podcasters are saying. And we've gotten really good at saying these things because this podcast we really like that kind of affirms our worldview, affirms our perspectives, affirms how we see things. And maybe it's not a podcaster. It could be a talking head. It could be a radio host, whatever you want to call it. But we get good at saying what they say. So I'm going to say all the names of the pod. No, we'll call him Podcaster Tobiah and Sandblot. Some of us have become the mouthpieces of the world and the world is using you and you're doing it for free. Church, that's not who we are. We're not supposed to be mouthpieces of the world. We're not supposed to talk about things the way the world talks about things. Now sometimes maybe there's going to be similarities and overlap, but almost always... If you're going to be a person of Jesus, the way you talk about it is going to be unlike anybody. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be perplexing. It's going to be dividing at times, even though you're being kind. Because you won't hop on one side or the other. Too many of us are letting the world use us. We've become mouthpieces for Tobiah and Sambalot. Some of, some of you already, I know, in your seats, you're going, Anthony, I'm speaking the truth, though. <laughs> and we know God is a God of truth. Right. I agree with you. But in the New Testament, when it talks about Christians speaking the truth, it always says, do it in love. So if your truth has not love, it's a noisy gong. Right? It could be the truest thing ever. Two plus two is four. Like, that's just not the right way to say it. Okay? It's just not the right, like there, there's a way that we speak the truth as Christians, and we do it in love. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of hearing like, I like, like all, you guys know, some of you are in the audience. I will message you on Facebook. I'll be like, hey, I don't think that was very nice what you just said on Facebook to that person. I'm just speaking the truth, Anthony. <sighs> I love you, even if that's you. We need to speak the truth in love. That's who we are. I want to invite us into something else. I want to invite us not into being mouthpieces of the world, but I want us to be, invite us into being prophets of God. I want to invite us into being the mouthpieces of God. To speak as God speaks. To, to know this book so well that when a, a confusing situation comes up, we could begin to talk about it maybe in the ways God talks about it and not the talking heads, not podcaster Tobiah and Sambalot. In fact, I would love for it that we're so well, at, uh, that we're so good at knowing this book and speaking about it and talking through these things that we actually begin to live differently as God's people. That we live in a way that helps society to flourish and helps society to move towards what God created them for. That's what I hope. That's what God wants to invite us into. Or we can keep being Shemaiah and Noadiah and speaking for the world, being used by the world. I don't want that for us, though. I think for us to be God's people, we need to become his mouthpieces, not somebody else's. All right. 
Third observation is this. I love you guys. Just remember that. Third observation is this. Following God in this world will be scary at times. So scary that you're going to need to pray prayers like strengthen my hands. Following God is scary at times. Did you notice Nehemiah, he's talking about in those first nine verses, in verse eight and nine, I think it is, how they're trying to scare them enough so that their hands drop from their work. And then Nehemiah stops and he says, God, strengthen my hands. Do you know what that tells me? Nehemiah was kind of scared. (laughs) If he wasn't scared, he doesn't need to pray a prayer that says, God, don't let their fear make my hands drop. He saw their, their attacks. They're, they're, they're trying to assassinate him. They're trying to draw him out. It was scaring him. So much so that he, he wanted to remind us that he prayed a prayer saying, God, strengthen my hands. Let me to be able to keep doing this work. Following God is scary sometimes in this world. Right? Anyone that's been a Christian for any amount of time It's not long before you find yourself in a moment where it's kind of scary to follow Christ into what he has for you. And if if, if you're like, I'm not really scared very much following Christ. One, either you have an amazing gift of boldness that is great for us, and the church needs that. Or you're just not very outward focused. You've fortified. You don't really interact with the world at all. You don't really bring the gospel to anyone in the world. You don't really love the world and restore the world in any ways. Because when you begin to do those things, our faith, following Jesus, can get scary. We find ourselves with adversaries like Tobiah and Sambalot who try to stop what we do, who try to slander us, who try to hurt us. Thank God in this society, it's mostly just emotionally but all sorts of ways. At times, following Jesus is scary. It just is. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, and I think too often we've been kind of dishonest and we're kind of like, if you're scared of following Christ, something's wrong with you. No, it's scary. Because what Christ has for us is so counter what the world has for us. It's so counter to what people want to do. Man, even, when, even when I meet the most loving, kind Christians who, who are just, everybody around them loves them and they, they never do anything mean, even they often have these stories of these different adversaries coming out into their life and, and trying to hurt them and cause pain and suffering or slander. Simply because they love Christ. Now, I, I do want to give a small caveat to that. Is sometimes it's scary following Christ because there's a whole bunch of knuckleheads who've ruined it for the rest of us. Okay? Like, we have to acknowledge that. There's a whole bunch of Christians who've said, no, I'm going to be a jerk while I'm a Christian. I'm going to be mean. I'm going to be antagonistic. I'm going to do things contrary to the way of love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13 and throughout the Bible. And they've ruined it for the rest of us. And then often those same people are fighting for power. Like what matters most to them is a fight for power, which is confusing because the gospel is a message of a God who gave up his power to bring us in. 
And so a bunch of them have ruined it for us. And so sometimes society rebels against us because we have the name of Christ and those same knuckleheads have the same name of Christ. I just want to give that caveat. But for whatever reason, whether it's their fault, whether it's human hearts rebellious, like the rebellious nature of human hearts' fault, sometimes following Christ can be scary. In those moments when it's scary to follow Christ, church, we need to find ourselves praying prayers like, God, strengthen my hands. God, continue to help me to love you and love people. God, help me to be who you want me to be in this world. We have to pray those sort of prayers because I think sometimes we get two, I really feel like two reactions to when things get scary walking out of our faith. And the first reaction is we just run away, right? We figure out how everything Jesus said, nah, he didn't really say that. Right? How often does our faith become so watered down that for some of us, because we're scared, be like, Jesus said, love your enemy. Well, not my enemy. <laughs> like, he didn't mean that. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Well, he meant like, not, no, I don't have to. Like, he meant like, I could fly to heaven. <laughs> like, so often we get scared, and so we kind of, we water down, and we walk away from the faith. And then the other side of us, we just get angry. And we just blast society, and everybody in society is our enemy. But that's not what Nehemiah did. When that was going on, Nehemiah did get scared and he just said, God, strengthen my hands. Help me to be who you want me to be. Help me to live out what you want me to live out. Help me to finish this work of restoring God's people in this dangerous time, in this discouraging place. Church, we got to pray. We got to be a praying people. Your faith, walking out your faith, will be scary sometimes. Right, sometimes the way the Christian faith has been proposed to us, like, hey, it's this easy, awesome thing and all your dreams are fulfilled. Yeah, one day in the resurrection with Christ. But in the meantime, he has us living in this broken, sinful world because he is on a mission to restore all things and he wants to do some of that through us. And that's scary sometimes. So rather than run away or get angry, pray. Ask God, God, Strengthen my hands. Even pray these kind of imprecatory prayers that, that Nehemiah prayed. God, remember these fools. <laughs> remember these guys. Help me to love them. Help me to forgive them. Help me to know that justice one way or another will come to them through your hands, God. Whether it's through your son dying on a cross or other means. God, strengthen our hands. I hope that we can be this sort of church, that when things get scary, we don't, get, we don't run away, or we don't get angry, but that we pray and say, God, help us to live out our identity as your people. That's the only way through this scariness. We, we can't be God's people if we don't pray. <laughs> this is a highlight and a, a, a clear identity of God's people throughout Scripture is that we are praying people. And we can pray about whatever it is, even when things are scary. Okay, so th those are my observations that I, that I hope build us up, but I, I don't want to end there. I, I really want to end looking at Jesus. 
Because here, here's what's the, the beautiful thing about Scripture and Jesus. All Scripture points to Jesus, and all Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. And so all of these ways of being God's people, all of these ways of building ourselves up into God's people and living out that identity, we can do it rooted in the fact that Jesus did all of those things perfectly. We can do it rooted in the, in the realization that Jesus has done those things completely and totally, and he's inviting us into that as well. Like, Jesus has made a way for us to be so connected to the Father, right? The veil was torn the day he died. He lived a life, he died a death for our sins, and he raised from the dead, and because of that, we can be so connected to the Father that we're secure in him and in his love, and we don't have to fear people as much. Jesus is the true and greatest prophet. Jesus is the literal mouthpiece of God. So if you're ever wondering what does it mean to be a mouthpiece of God, look to Jesus. And don't twist his words. And don't twist the context to fit your context. Realize Jesus was usually the most serious with the religious elite who had the Bible memorized. Not the politicians. Not the people in their church that disagreed with him. Well, I guess that would fit the religious leap. But you get what I'm saying. Jesus was the true and greatest prophet. He shows us how to be the mouthpiece of God. Jesus also said, hey, I'm with you to the ends of the age. Jesus is with us when things are scary. Jesus is always with us. That is the beauty of what he did with his life. He made it so that he, through his spirit, can be with us always, even when things are scary. Jesus weakened himself so he could strengthen us and build us up. He faced death so we don't have to be scared of death. He allowed the delight of the Father to be off of him for a moment in time so we could have the delight of the Father for all moments in the rest of time. Jesus has done all this. That's why we can be built up into this people. He is the head of the body, the church, who we are. He is who shows us who we are supposed to be, who we are to live into, and we can only do that because he did that. He's not just arbitrarily saying these things for us to be and to do. He's done all of them. He is all of them. We operate out of an understanding of how Jesus has saved us by no work of our own. And he is creating us and forming us into the identity that he intends for us. And so church, go away from here not feeling like, oh, i got to have the will to, to not be afraid anymore. Or I have to have a will to do this or do that. But go away from here going, Jesus has done that for me, so now I can reflect him to the world in those ways. We can be a church that fears God more than we fear man. We can be a church that chooses to be his mouthpiece rather than the world's mouthpiece. We can be a church that prays when we're scared of following him. Let us be that church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Uh, for all you've done. Thank you that 
even our identity as God's people and the things that you would have us be and do and live out are all things that you have done and been and have lived out and are being and are doing. God, help us to do this. God, I, I really do think the, the church in America is kind of shell-shocked right now in a number of ways, and we're reacting to it in all sorts of ways, but I, I pray that for this church here, this room, this people of God, I pray that we would follow you truly, sincerely, with conviction, that we would be convicted by our sins, that we would change the ways we've been doing things. That we, would, that we would get what we need to hear from you, not just what we want to hear from you. So God, do a breakthrough in this church. Do a breakthrough in each and all, all of our lives. Do a breakthrough in my life so that I and us are built up into the people that you want us to be. God, we love you. We need you. Help us to love you. Help us to display that love. Amen.